this is Corey with Black Box Hobby, and thank you for choosing to listen to the Vintage Baseball Card Podcast, where everything old is new again. Today we're going to be discussing the 1933 Gowdy Set, or R319 as designated by Jefferson Burdick. If you end up liking this episode and would like to show some support while also showing your love for the hobby, please visit our store at tpublic.com to see our baseball card-themed shirts, hoodies, masks, magnets, and more. I'll have a link in the show notes, but the URL is tpublic.com slash user slash blackboxhobby. You can also follow us on Twitter at blackboxhobby, and please leave us a positive review on whatever platform you are using to listen to our podcast. On to 1933 Gowdy. In 1933, The United States is in the midst of the Great Depression as Franklin Delano Roosevelt becomes the 32nd president, prohibition is repealed, a supreme evil in Adolf Hitler rises to power as Chancellor of Germany, Albert Einstein arrives in the United States as a refugee fleeing Nazi Germany, the first official all-star game is played at Comiskey Park, Jimmy Fox of the American League Athletics and Chuck Klein with the National League Phillies each win the Triple Crown. Babe Ruth would take the mound for the last time in his career as he pitched a complete game victory over the Boston Red Sox. The New York Giants would win the World Series just one year after the retirement of longtime manager John McGraw. And the Gowdy Gum Company would help connect two products which would be linked for decades to come chewing gum, and baseball cards. Produced in the era of pre-war vintage, many would say the 1933 Gowdy set is the first modern baseball card issue. The 1933 Gowdy cards are 2 and 3 eighths inches by 2 and 7 eighths inches, slightly rectangular. The cards, like many other pre-war art cards, are extremely colorful and eye-catching. While not as artistically detailed and crisp as the T3 Turkey Reds we've discussed in the past, they have a more understated artistic design and illustration, an iconic look reminiscent of the 1914-15 Cracker Jack cards. And the larger size of these cards also allowed for more information about the players to be printed on the back of the card. The set helped to usher in the era of gum cards that would continue with National Chickle, Playball, Leaf, Bowman, and finally monopolized by Tops. The set consists of 240 cards, with one being an iconic rarity which we'll discuss. The set is chock full of Hall of Famers, with many having multiple cards in the set including Babe Ruth leading the way with a total of four different cards. Twenty-three players in all are featured on more than one card in the set. The cards were printed on ten different sheets, each containing twenty-four cards, and the pasteboard used was thicker and more sturdier than many of the tobacco-issued cards that came before. Many of these thick, uncut pasteboard sheets are still in existence, and remind me of early comic book art or even pop art due to their colorful arrangements. The cards printed on the first two sheets were actually printed on lesser quality cardstock 
and are more scarce than those cards printed on subsequent sheets. Many of the uncut sheets that have surfaced in the hobby today originated from the William Gardner collection. As a youth, Gardner lived near the Gowdy offices and somehow managed to acquire uncut sheets directly from the gum company for his personal collection. Shortly after the successful launch of its Indian gum product, which featured cards adorned with Native Americans, which are truly beautiful cards in their own right if you can somehow disregard the commercialization of the subjects and the controversial descriptions on the back, the Massachusetts-based Gowdy Gum Company developed the branded product called Big League Gum and launched the brand with the insertion of R319 cards. In an era where televisions were not yet part of households, these visually appealing throw-ins intended to help sell gum captured the attention of young collectors of the day, and for one penny, a customer could get this wonderful bundle of a stick of chewing gum and a thick, sturdy baseball card. Quite a deal and an affordable treat during the trying times of the Great Depression. While the set is laden with stars and Hall of Famers, it is interesting to note that several minor leaguers of the time are also included in the set, 15 total, perhaps a marketing ploy to help sell cards in those minor league city markets as well. While most of the cards are printed vertically on the slightly rectangular cards, there are four cards which are presented in a horizontal format, including Hall of Famers Rogers Hornsby and Carl Hubble. The brightly colored backgrounds, which are solid colors on the majority of the cards, help give these cards the charm and appeal that continue to make them highly desirable years later. The player's name is printed in block lettering in black near the top of the card, typically in contrast to the colored background. The bottom of the cards feature a red banner with big league chewing gum printed within. However, this branding banner is explicitly omitted on the cards printed on sheets 8, 9, and 10. The backs of the cards are printed in green ink. The card number listed at the top, player name and team name listed next, and then a biographical blurb. The bottom third of the card features an advertising and branding section which states, This is one of a series of 240 baseball stars. Big League Chewing Gum, Gowdy Gum Company, Boston, made by the originators of Indian Gum. All 16 Major League teams from the time are represented in the set, with the Washington Senators, losers of the World Series that year, featuring the most with 30 cards. The World Series winning Giants players are featured on 26 cards, including the last 11 cards of the set, and were issued after the World Series. There is only one known corrected error. Card number six of Jimmy Dykes originally indicated he was 26 years old and corrected on future production runs to 36. One uncorrected error was the misspelling of George Mule Haas, spelled H-A-A-S, but misspelled on his Gowdy card as H-A-S-S. -S. And now the big question. 
Did Gowdy perpetuate a scam on the collecting public? As I mentioned earlier, the 1933 Gowdy set consisted of 240 cards. Or did it? As kids and other collectors tried to amass the entire 240-card set, no matter how hard they tried, no matter how much bubblegum they purchased, it couldn't be done. The same card was stumping every set collector. Card number 106 was missing. Many theorized that in an idea that was part marketing genius and part scam, Gowdy deliberately left the card out of the set to dupe the unaware public into buying more gum in an attempt to find the card. At a penny a pack, there's probably not a ton of sympathy for the hoodwinked kids who kept buying and buying gum on the search for that elusive card number 106. However, such a deliberately deceitful business practice today would likely warrant a federal investigation. As parents complained to Gowdy about the apparent missing card, they were directed to write the company to request the card. The next year, in 1934, Gowdy issued card number 106, none other than Hall of Famer Napoleon Lajaway, and mailed the card to those parents and collectors who had written in to complain and request the card. While the card was number 106 of the 1933 set, the front was produced in the style of the 1934 Gowdy set, while the back retained the 1933 design, a Frankenstein card of sorts. Due to common damage on many known examples of the card, it is theorized that when Gowdy mailed the cards to those who requested it, they paperclipped the card to a letter causing damage to the top of the card. It is unclear why Gowdy chose to feature Lajaway, who had retired in 1916 on the missing card. Due to its extreme rarity, Hall of Fame subject, and lore surrounding its scarcity, it remains one of the most expensive and highly desirable pre-war vintage cards. It should be noted that there is a single copy known to exist of a Leo DeRocher card with the number 106 printed on the back. It is speculated that hobbyist, cartoonist, and tops designer Woody Gelman obtained the card directly from a contact with Gowdy, with the card, most likely a hand-cut production proof, later transferring to noted collector Barry Halper, and I believe it is now owned by notable collector Keith Olbermann. While nowhere near as rare as the Lajaway, Another renowned card, or should I say another renowned four cards, are the four issues featuring Babe Ruth. While approaching the twilight of his career in 1933, the Babe would retire in 1935, he was still every bit the hero he was to kids and baseball fans as he was in his prime. In fact, he hit 301 with 34 home runs, 104 RBIs, and led the league in walks in 1933, clearly still proficient and feared as a batter. Perhaps the most famous man to ever walk the planet, even kids today still know the name Babe Ruth. And since there were very few major card issues during his actual playing days, 
these four cards of Ruth in the 1933 Gowdy set are extremely sought-after relics of the man who forever changed the game of baseball. Two of the cards feature the same image, the great Bambino from the torso up post-swing, but with a different background color, one with yellow and one with red. Another card features the Sultan of Swat, again from the torso up, kind of looking over his shoulder to the side with a green background. And in his final card of the set, which was actually a double print and therefore more common than the other Ruth cards, the Colossus of Clout is shown post-swing, his full body in view set against the backdrop of a bright yellow sky, stadium fencing, and bright green grass of the field. While I mentioned, at least to me, that the fronts have an early comic book art vibe feel, some of the blurbs on the back of the cards are likewise comic bookish. Such descriptions as, What a hitter for Lou Gehrig. Oh boy, hasn't he got speed for Dazzy Vance. And, What a ball player for Kiki Kyler. Allude to the juvenile audience the cards were intended for. The biographies in general are very entertaining reads, whether providing insights on a player's nickname, discussing the player's off-season job, or highlighting an aspect of the player's game, such as being a spitballer, a practice banned in 1920 but grandfathered in for several pitchers featured in the 1933 set, the backs of the cards are nearly as endearing as the fronts. With each set discussion, I choose five cards to highlight. These aren't necessarily the five most expensive or desirable cards. They are just simply the five cards that I find the most interesting, the most compelling as a collector. For the 1933 Gowdy set, number five is Moberg. If you've never heard of Moberg, you're not alone. While he did receive a few votes for the Baseball Hall of Fame, he was mostly a career backup catcher. 243 lifetime average with a negative war value, you might ask why his card would be so appealing. And the answer would be, he's arguably the most interesting player to ever play the game. So fascinating was his life that a film based on his biography is currently available for streaming on Hulu and stars Paul Rudd as Berg. So what makes him so interesting? Berg was an intellectual and a bit of an oddball to say the least. Once described as the strangest man ever to play baseball by another colorful character, manager Casey Stingel, Berg spoke several languages and supposedly read 10 newspapers a day. A pedestrian player, Stingel again quipped, Berg can speak a dozen languages, but can't hit in any of them. He appears several times on a popular radio quiz show of the era called Information, Please, in which his intellect was on full display. He was a magna cum laude graduate of Princeton, where he studied seven languages and then later graduated from Columbia Law School. Published two years after his retirement in the Atlantic Monthly, his 1941 essay titled Pitchers and Catchers 
was widely acclaimed and is still considered one of the most insightful works on the game of baseball. During his playing days in 1934, a group of baseball all-stars, which included the likes of Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, and Jimmy Fox, played exhibition games on a barnstorming tour through Japan. While the rest of the team was playing a game in Omiya, Berg traveled to the tallest building in Tokyo and filmed the city and harbor with his movie camera, providing the U.S. with rare images of the foreign city. Thus began Berg's life as a U.S. intelligence spy for the Office of Strategic Services and CIA. From Japan, Berg continued to travel to the Philippines, Korea, and Moscow collecting intelligence. Berg would go on to travel to Yugoslavia to gather intelligence on resistance groups which the U.S. was considering supporting. He interviewed and gathered intelligence from Italian physicists concerning the Nazi-German nuclear program. He is responsible for helping many German scientists relocating to America. He was assigned to South America to counteract Axis propaganda. In 1944, Berg attended a lecture by German physicist Werner Heisenberg, the head of Germany's nuclear program, where he posed as a student. Remarkably, the Office of Strategic Services had armed Berg with a gun and arsenic tablets with orders to assassinate Heisenberg if the Nazis were close to deploying a nuclear bomb, which obviously didn't come to pass. In 1952, he was engaged by the CIA to use his old World War II contacts to gather intelligence on the Soviet nuclear program. However, by the mid-1950s, the CIA viewed Berg as unreliable and, quote, flaky. He would remain unemployed while giving the impression to friends and families that he was still secretly a government spy. He was forced to live off friends and family for the next 20 years and would reside with various siblings until his death in 1972. After the war, Berg was awarded the Medal of Freedom, the highest honor given to civilians during wartime from President Truman for his service, but he declined to accept the honor. After his death, his sister, Ethel, requested and accepted the award on his behalf, later donating it to the Baseball Hall of Fame where it resides today. He was posthumously inducted into the National Jewish Sports Hall of Fame. A biography was published in 1994 called The Catcher Was a Spy, The Mysterious Life of Mo Berg. The book was later adapted to a film starring Paul Rudd and is currently available on Hulu. Two of his baseball cards are on display at the CIA Museum, with one of them being his 1933 Gowdy, which shows Berg squatting in a catcher's position with no catcher's gear, ball in hand, about to throw it back to the mound. His catcher's mitt is on full display, with his image being set against a green background. His full name, Morris Moberg, displayed at the top. Number four on my list, Jimmy Fox. Jimmy Fox was a first baseman who played 20 seasons, most prominently with the Philadelphia Athletics and the Boston Red Sox. One of the game's all-time great sluggers, Lefty Gomez once noted that Fox had 
muscles in his hair. He was a three-time MVP and finished his Hall of Fame career with 534 dingers and a lifetime average of 325. His back-to-back MVP seasons of 1932 and 1933 is one of the best two-year stretches of all time. In retirement, he managed a team in the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, and the character of Jimmy Dugan, portrayed by Tom Hanks in A League of Their Own, is loosely based on Fox. After some bad investments, he went broke and died at the age of 59, by choking on a piece of food. He has two cards in the 1933 Gaudi set, which are virtually identical. His full body is shown at the end of the follow-through of a swing. Set against a bright yellow background, the top half of his body appears to be leaning heavily forward, his body overly twisted in what appears to be an adaptation of a staged photo. Number three on my list. Rogers Hornsby. Rogers Hornsby is without question one of the best infielders of all time. A versatile player who also played shortstop and third base, he is mostly known for his play as a second baseman. A lifetime 358 hitter, second only to Cobb, he was also one of the game's best sluggers of the era, finishing his career with 301 home runs. His 1922 Triple Crown season is one of the best seasons of all time, finishing the year with a 401 average, 42 home runs, and 152 RBIs. Nicknamed the Raja, he was notoriously difficult to get along with and was not well liked by his fellow players. He never smoked, drank, or went to the movies but was a frequent gambler, which some think led to a period of being blackballed by the league. Post-retirement, he would manage several teams until he wore out his welcome with players and ownership. He died in 1963. Hornsby has two cards in the set. The one I'm focusing on is the horizontal card number 119. In it, the right-handed infielder appears to have his foot on a base while leaning over to field either a grounder or a low throw. A nondescript runner is shown in the background rushing towards the bag. Like Fox, the card is backdropped with a bright yellow sky, green infield grass, and a dirt base path. Number two on my list, Lou Gehrig. Few players can transcend sports. But the New York Yankees of the era had two players that did just that. Lou Gehrig, at six foot and 200 pounds, was built like a truck and just had the look of a great baseball player. Often overshadowed by the larger-than-life Babe Ruth, Gehrig's play speaks for itself. A two-time MVP, triple crown winner, seven-time All-Star, and six-time World Series champion, his talent is indisputable. His combination of power, he hit 493 home runs, and average, his lifetime average is 340, is only matched all-time by his own teammate, Babe Ruth. Nicknamed the Iron Horse, in 1925, he would replace Wally Pipp at first base for the New York Yankees 
and go on to play 2,130 consecutive games and would be the first player to have his number retired by a team. Sadly, in 1939, Gehrig would be diagnosed with ALS, an incurable neuromuscular disease, which is also commonly known as Lou Gehrig's disease. The disease would force him to retire at the age of 36 when he delivered his iconic luckiest man on the face of the earth speech at Yankee Stadium. He would die from the disease less than two years later at the young age of 37. His life was the subject of the 1942 film The Pride of the Yankees, starring Gary Cooper as Gehrig, which received 11 Academy Award nominations. Like Fox, he has two virtually identical cards in the set. In this well-known and highly sought-after card featuring a sky-blue background, Gehrig's full body is shown in his pinstriped uniform at the beginning stages of a swing. You can almost close your eyes and picture his hands and hips pulling the bat through the zone, his massive body clearly giving the left-hander some serious power. And number one on the list, Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth was probably the best baseball player of all time. When you combine his proficiency on the mound early in his career to his frankly unbelievable offensive numbers, he's likely untouchable. When you stack his numbers against those of his contemporaries, you can understand why he spawned a new adjective, Ruthian. He finished his career with 714 home runs, a number that is forever implanted in many stat-loving baseball fans' brains, a record that stood until Hank Aaron surpassed him in 1974. He had a span where he led the league in home runs an amazing 12 of 14 years. His lifetime slugging and OPS are still number one all time. In fact, Words cannot do his offensive numbers justice. Just go to BaseballReference.com and pull up his batting statistics to visually see his absolute dominance. And of course, before becoming the most prolific hitter of all time, he was a superb pitcher, leading the league in 1916 with a 1.75 ERA. He finished his pitching career with a record of 94 wins and 46 losses, with 17 shutouts, the same career total as fellow Hall of Famer Pedro Martinez, to add context to that stat. A living legend in his time, he was as boisterous and larger-than-life off the field as he was dominant on it. Born to a Baltimore saloon owner, his troubled youth eventually landed him in a Catholic reformatory school where he excelled at baseball. At age 19, he signed with the Baltimore Orioles and was soon sold to the Red Sox, where he was a successful pitcher and won three World Series. In 1919, after converting to an everyday outfielder, he set the single-season home run record with 29. At the end of the season, the Red Sox, in a move that would define their franchise for nearly a century, sold Babe Ruth to the Yankees, where he soon became the face of baseball and the idol of the baseball-loving kids of the time. The curse of the Bambino would hang over the Red Sox franchise until they finally exercised those demons and won the World Series in 2004. 
As his fame and popularity grew, so did his reputation for boozing and womanizing. A detective that the Yankees had hired to follow him one night in Chicago reported back that Ruth had been with six women that night. He would be suspended on multiple occasions, but his lore only grew. Whether it was promising a sick child he would have hit a home run in the World Series, a likely true story, or whether in another World Series he pointed to the stands before the pitch, calling his shot, then putting the next pitch over the fence for a home run, a likely untrue story, it's hard to separate the man from the legend. He finished his career with the Boston Braves with hopes of transitioning to being a manager, which would never come to pass. In one of his last few games, he would go 4-for-4 four four with three home runs. Dying from cancer in 1948, Ruth visited Yale to donate his biographical manuscript to the Yale Library. While there, he would meet the captain of the Yale baseball team, future U.S. President George H.W. Bush. Bush himself would later be the subject of a rare and highly sought-after card, his famed 1990 Topps card. Speaking of presidents, we'll wrap up on this anecdote regarding then-President Herbert Hoover. After Ruth signed a record contract paying him $80,000 a year, reporters asked him if he felt he deserved to make more than the president. Without missing a beat, Ruth replied, Why not? I had a better year than he did. Ruth truly transcended baseball and perhaps best represents the personification of America itself. As mentioned earlier, the Babe has four cards in the set and the one I'm focusing on is card number 181. Because the other three cards are all based on the same image, this card is truly unique among the four. The card features Ruth from the torso up, a bat resting in his hands at the stomach level. He is turning his head towards the right, almost as though he's looking over his shoulder. He is featured in the traditional Yankee pinstripes, and the artist does a good job of giving Ruth's face the undeniable character, grit, and charisma that always seems to exist in real-life photos. In conclusion, it's probably a bit ironic that cars that were being sold with a stick of gum for a penny apiece during the Great Depression are now some of the most valuable cards in the hobby. The set could represent a transition in the hobby, moving from a time when cards were inserted into tobacco products primarily aimed at adults to a time when cards were inserted into gum products primarily aimed at children. With such a stellar selection of players, including the inclusion of four Babe Ruth cards, the men behind the Gowdy Company could never have known the true impact their marketing ploy would end up having on the hobby of card collecting. Like Ruth himself, the set is full of character, superior to its contemporaries, has a bit of controversy, and hits a home run with collectors. And that officially wraps up our look at the 1933 Gowdy set. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Vintage Baseball Card Podcast. Again, if you like this podcast and would like to show some support while also showing your love for the hobby, please visit our store at 
tpublic.com to see our baseball card-themed shirts, hoodies, masks, magnets, and more. I'll have a link in the show notes, but the URL is tpublic.com slash user slash blackboxhobby. You can also follow us on Twitter at blackboxhobby. And please leave us a positive review on whatever platform you are using to listen to our podcast. Until next time, remember, everything old is new again. Happy collecting.